You're listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Many of you will have heard the news that the greatest ever radio host, Rush Limbaugh, passed away today. I know for so many of you across the country, as he was for me, he was many things to us, a, a teacher, a patriot, an icon, a friend, uh, a familiar and friendly voice that you would listen to and that could make sense of everything, that would bring it all together for you, that you knew was on your side, that felt the way you did about momentous things happening in the country for decades. Rush created an industry, in a sense, that so many of us, including myself, now work in. I mean, conservative media without Rush Limbaugh doesn't even feel like it's a thing that would be possible, would have been possible. It doesn't feel like he, he could have, uh, we, we could have been here without Rush paving the way. And now we no longer have that voice to guide us. Now we no longer have somebody who has that that gravitas that I know so many people who will tell me that they are, you know, rush babies or, or, you know, their parents have been listening to rush for 20 years. And it has always been the greatest compliment that I've received in this business. When people say to me, I listened, I listened to rush and I've added you in, you know, after I listen to rush, if I have time, I'll get to you. I've always taken that as nothing but the, the highest possible compliment for this craft. You know, it's like saying after I watch, after I watch, uh, you know, Tom Brady or, or Michael Jordan play at their absolute peak, you know, I'll flip the channel and give you, and give you some time, because Rush is the greatest. Uh, Rush is the greatest that's ever done this. He changed the trajectory of of this country. Um, he was truly gifted. I I will tell you I. Uh, I'll get into some of the more personal side of this, but I um, I learned the craft. I learned radio from Rush. By the time I went to work for Glenn Beck, now almost 10 years ago, uh, the person that I would listen to, the person who I would hear giving monologues and, and just speaking to the country. I mean, that's what he, he had this gift. You always felt like Rush was sitting in the room with you. You always felt like Rush was having a, a one-to-one conversation with you. It just so happened that it was you and millions of other people all across America. And he was, he was gifted. I mean, truly gifted. There are a lot of people that work in news media that they either get lucky or they just put in enough hours and they stick it out long enough that they get to a, a privileged position. Uh, Rush was in a different league. Uh, the way that he could weave stories, the way that he would hone in on the one detail, the one line of a news story that thousands, hundreds of thousands of other people would have read, but Rush would go on air and he would say, Here, here's the one thing that you, that you need to know about this that, that other people are either missing or don't want you to know about, don't want you to talk about. What would the Republican Party even be without Rush Limbaugh? What would conservatism in America be? He transcended news and was an icon and was somebody who was a cultural phenomenon to have had the reach that he had for as long as he did 
and to give people some sense that they did have a voice before the Internet really was a factor, before Fox News came on board. There was Rush. And I know there, there were other hosts and there were other you know, publications and people that were trying to make similar general arguments. But we had this. We had this superstar. We had this person who was able to take the feelings of the country in one moment and, and not only explain what's so important and educate so many of us at the same time, but to make us all feel like we were together. There was a community in listening to Rush Limbaugh. There was a, a, a connection that was there. And if you knew somebody else who listened to Rush, it, it was like talking about your fate. It was like you found out you were huge fans of the same sports team. You know, it's like you just met somebody. Oh, you're a Dodgers fan. I'm a Dodgers fan. You, you love the Giants. I love the Giants. You know, there was there was a bond there. There was a commonality for millions of people. And at a time when there were so few places you could go, even though half the country roughly is Republican, a little more than that identifies as conservative. And certainly we're talking about, you know, over 100 million people, 150, 160 million people. And there are so few places you can go where you would hear what you knew to be the truth and you knew it was honest and it was coming from a place of of both accessibility and genius. I listened to the greats. I knew that radio was something I wanted to do without ever actually really having done it. I just had a feeling and it was because I listened to the best. But no one, no one was ever in the same league as Rush. Nobody was ever able to capture your attention, make you feel like you were both getting the highest level analysis, but you're getting it from a close friend. There's nobody else out there who could do that. There are other hosts who have who have their talents and their skills, and, and I recognize what they are. I, I, I try to learn from them. Um, you know, you know, who, you know, who some of the greats are, you know, when when Glenn Beck is in his zone telling a story, I mean, he's he is a gifted uh, a gifted storyteller and is has amazing comedic timing. I mean, he has a lot of but Glenn Glenn would never say that, you know, he was in Russia's category, of course. Uh, no, none of us would. Right. You know, Sean is massively successful, enormously influential. But even even the great Sean Hannity knows there's only one rush. Rush is. Uh, rush is someone who. I will say now I, I worry about what happens in the absence of his voice. You know, I've, I've talked before about the need that we have at conservatism for unsinkable an unsinkable aircraft carrier of free speech. Well, we did have some innocent. We had rush. They couldn't cancel him. They couldn't shut him down. They couldn't stop him. They couldn't buy him off. They couldn't threaten him into into submission. They couldn't get him to just give up and reti- you know retire early and play golf. I'm sure the pressures on him in, were were enormous. But he showed up as a happy warrior day in and day out, and he fought until. And now this is apparent because of the news today. He truly fought until the very end. The very end. This was somebody who was who was uh, doing his life's work until the last moment that he could physically possibly do it. Think about the dedication. Think about the, the, the desire for the absolute height of excellence in one's 
life's work, because that's what we're talking about with Rush and radio. What his life was devoted to was this. This ability to reach so many people. What a gift. I mean, he had talent on loan from God, as he said. And now I suppose he's going back and can thank God in person. It's kind of hard to think about, honestly. What, what does it feel like now making the case in this country without Rush? Um, we have, in a sense, lost our, our most formidable general for conservatism. That's how I would describe it. We've lost the one guy that we knew could go up against any movement, against any political machinery. He could go toe-to-toe with anybody. And he would make that case. And he could win. And uh, right now, there's nobody who has that ability. Nobody can step into that role. And, and then it also reminds me of um, what a debt of gratitude I owe to Rush Limbaugh. There are very few times in my life that I could say I did not really think something was happening that was happening. As you all know, I started in radio uh, almost now nine years ago, I think it was. And I didn't even have a radio station. I didn't even have a terrestrial, uh, a terrestrial radio call letters that I could say. I was really just doing an Internet stream. And this was early on in that. I was doing a live, an internet stream at theblaze.com. We did it on the weekends, the original Saturday Squad. Some of you are still with me, and I'm very honored to this point. I remember the first shows that I did, I think I had a few dozen people listen. And I mean that, a few dozen. The first few radio shows that I did. And then it grew and it grew. And within 18 months or so of starting on radio, um, I... Was I'm very blessed, and I, I will always be grateful to Glenn Beck for putting me in the game and putting me in that role. But I, um, I was able to get the phone call from Rush's people, and I remember it was Kit Carson who very sadly also passed away some years ago. I believe it was brain cancer. I'll remember Kit Carson called me, and his voice, he had a very, he was a radio guy too, and he was this, Buck Sexton? Kit Carson here from the Rush Limbaugh show. And I was just, I honestly thought that somebody was uh, having a go at me. I, I thought they were, I thought they, this was like somebody I worked with at the Blaze. No way. And he said, how'd you, how'd you like to fill in on the Rush Limbaugh show? And this, I, I suppose, would have been like someone, you know, going up to a person who felt like they had just learned how to, how to pilot a, you know, a sailfish boat or something, you know, how to just, and somebody shows up and says, Hey, how'd you like to be in charge of a hundred million dollar super yacht for the afternoon? I mean, that's kind of what it felt like. Oh, okay. Um, here we go. And it was one of the, I've, I've had very few moments in my career where it felt like, um, I was, I feel, I'm sure a lot of people feel this way. I've had to be in the trenches. I've had to, earn every step that I've gotten and I've I've been denied a lot of opportunities that I think I should have had and uh, Rush Limbaugh though his show and it was with Rush's direct blessing so that's why I am thankful to him forever that was like a that was like being handed a gift from God that was something that I got you know I, I was blessed blessed 
to be able to be at the EIB mic with less than two years of radio experience behind me and then to be invited back many times. Why do I even have a syndicated radio show today? Why, why do I have this, this very fortunate situation of being on over 200 stations today? It's because of Rush Limbaugh. So I'm in a business that is only possible because of this man who held it up like Atlas for decades. And I had a, my, my single biggest breakout of my career it's the reason people say, oh, Buck, why didn't you do, you know, why didn't you go and build a YouTube channel years ago or do some of these digital things? Because I got a chance at the big at the uh, the big fill in with Rush. And, and then I got put on syndicated radio. I was on terrestrial radio. And, you know, that that seemed like my destiny. That seemed like my path. Again, only possible because of Rush. And I'm, I'm sorry to this day. I never I never met him. Never met him. Um, I know that he, he has talked about me uh numerous times in the past on his show and i don't know i must have filled in for him hosted that show about a dozen times over the years something like that and it was always amazing i'll never forget the first time i did it um you know what let me let me just take a moment here i'll i'll I'll, i want to get into a little bit more about that first fill in for for rush and we'll talk more about uh his legacy You're in the Freedom Hut. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Get the latest from Buck at BuckSexton.com. Coming back here again with the the very sad news that Rush Limbaugh, greatest radio host of all time, has passed away today. And I was telling you all about the, uh, the first time I was ever able to fill in for him. I remember Kit Carson called me. And and said, you want to fill in for Rush Limbaugh? And I couldn't believe, couldn't believe that it was actually happening. And then, as some of you know, my my uh, voice. My voice actually and I, I know this sounds this just sounds impossible. My voice for the first time in my life, I had complete laryngitis from a cold two days before I'm supposed to fill in for Rush. And sure enough. Um. They decided that I, you know, I was going to do it, and I had to go into the day before thinking I'm going to try to fill in for the greatest radio host of all time, and uh, the only I'm just going to try to do it, even though I actually don't have a voice. I actually do not have a voice, and I managed to find, with the help of my mother, my amazing. Always, always on the spot, always reliable, always getting it done, mom, the greatest. She got me a doctor who right in time gave me a shot of cortisone, which was going to open up my throat. I got the shot at 1045 a.m. And they said, you've got about three hours this will work for. I said, well, that'll just get me through the show. I did the show. It went well enough that they had me back. I got through it. I was terrified during the show that I was just going to have to, they were going to have to go to tape because my voice was literally going to disappear. Like there would be, would be no voice. Toward the end, my throat started to close again. And I got home. I, I, think I, I think I was just, you know, shaking with anxiety for hours afterwards because I was so terrified at the prospect of being on the biggest platform, the biggest show of all time, uh, and, and having my voice give out. I mean, it's like something out of someone's nightmare, but it didn't happen. I was fine. I got through it. 
It was a good show, not my best. And they had me back and had me back. And I got introduced to the family of millions, tens of millions of just wonderful people, patriots across the country who are Rush, who are the Rush Limbaugh family of listeners. And it changed my life. It changed the, the course of my career. Um, and it was, it's still one of the greatest blessings I've ever had. And it was all because Rush thought that this young guy had some ability and we should give him a shot. You know, I'm somebody who there are a lot of things in this business where people have said we could give him a shot. No, not him. No, not going to give, not going to pull him in, not going to make him this or that, or it's happened to me. I don't talk about it on the show. And some people in the business that you know have stopped me from getting shots. Some people that you would know have prevented me when I really needed a, an opportunity or a job from getting that job. And I know who's done it. And I'm, I, I think they should be ashamed, but you know, I, I won't get into it now. I've never done anything to, to this one person in particular, but neither here nor there. Rush gave me the shot. Rush changed my life. Not only did he teach me about politics for decades, not only was he the single greatest voice for our cause for all those years, but then I had the, the unbelievable fortune to be in a, a place where Rush Limbaugh and his team said, we think this Buck Saxon guy has some ability Let's give him a shot. And then they kept bringing me back. And they, they got me by putting me on that platform, by letting me borrow. I used to say borrow Uncle Rush's Maserati for the, for the day. That's what I called it when I would do his show. Uh, they, they gave me this show. I have it because of Rush Limbaugh. So I owe him a debt of gratitude I can, I can honestly never pay. And I just want to say um, he is the greatest. And thank you, Rush. And God bless. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Follow Buck on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Well, look, if it were easy, it would have been done by now. And I think we may, we're making progress. I think having a roadmap back that the CDC put out is a good thing. Look, it's not a matter of whether kids should go back to school. It's a matter of how. And giving people the guidance. I talked to a governor this morning, um, around, I should say yesterday morning, time is just a weird thing, but uh, around how, what are the things that their school can be doing? And what, what was expressed in the call was, he said, look, I know it's not going to be 100% safe, but get, you know, give me more measures and I can send more people back. And yes, there's emotions about this. And yes, there is, um, we're just getting new data, but being able to say, look, we can do the more of these things we can do, having kids wear masks and all of the things that were in the CDC guidelines means we can bring kids back and that's something that we have to stay committed to uh and and we are but it's not whether it's how many kids have been out of school for more than a year and there have been no guidance to schools relatively speaking until last week on what they can do to open up so hopefully we'll now begin to push that process i wanted you to hear that whole thing because that's biden covid advisor andy slavitt and he's a blathering moron this guy's a moron okay he ignores all the all the things that we've learned, everything we've seen. This whole, oh, it's so complicated to send kids back to school. No, that's because they've created an artificial perception of control and an artificial promise of safety. It's not hard. You want to send kids back to school? Say, hey, everybody, kids are going back to school. End of story. Open up. Let's go. That's it. And then if there are any problems, if you've got people who are teachers who are older or comorbidities or whatever, they take it up with their school district and there should be accommodations made so that they can either stay home till they're vaccinated 
which some of them are already vaccinated. Understand there are teachers who are vaccinated who still don't want to go into the classroom. Still too dangerous. Look, this is the, the nation has embraced a, a cowardice in day to day life right now. Unfortunately, far too many people are just the, the media and social media and all these. Oh, they just live in constant fear. Well, that's because there are people who want to control them and controlling a frightened population is much easier. It's also because the people in charge won't admit that they've been wrong, that they don't really know what they're doing. They've given terrible, not just advice, they've made horrible decisions for all the rest of us. Uh, if it were easy, it would have been done by now, he says on schools, Andy, Andy Slavitt. And this guy, I see his stuff on Twitter. He's been a jackass who's wrong about COVID all along. All along. His predictions are awful. His assessments are terrible. That's who this guy is. And yet he's telling us it, it would have already been done. It has been done. There are private and parochial schools across the country open, and Florida is open. Every kid in Florida who wants to be in in-person instruction is able to under, under state laws right now and has been able to do that all along. So someone explained, how is this so difficult? No, they're making it so difficult. They're making it so complicated. You, know, you should really see, you should ask this guy, uh, they, all, all you have to know is when you line up California and Florida right now, this is a huge problem for the lockdown libs who have been so smug. And I'm sorry, I do take this personally because they've ruined lives here in New York. They've made us all just tremendously depressed and, and anxious. And they've told us it's all for our, our safety. We, it had to be this bad. They had to shut down restaurants and if you question it why are you trying to kill people they got all in your face and crazy they were wrong a bunch of hysterical nincompoops freaking out all the time where's your fourth mask quadruple mask and now when you see what happened in florida you see what happened in california an excellent apples to apples comparison nobody can avoid this anymore so now the the lib media is looking for okay what are our talking points on this Come on, Biden experts. What are our talk? What do we say now? Because people who aren't complete morons can understand that if Florida's a little bit better than California in terms of covid situation and has been open this whole time, what the heck was the benefit of locking down California? Someone explained that to me. I can tell you who's not going to explain it. Biden covid advisor uh, Andy Slavitt. Once again, play 12. Contrast states like Florida and California, um, California basically in lockdown and their numbers aren't that different from Florida. Well, good morning, Stephanie. Uh, look, there's so much of this virus that we think we understand, that we think we can predict that's just beyond a little bit beyond our explanation. What we do know is that the more careful people are, the more they mask and social distance and the quicker we vaccinate, the quicker it goes away and the less it spreads. But we have got to get better visibility into variants. We don't know what role they play, um, large events, et cetera. But, the, you know, this is, a, as we all have learned by this time, this is a virus that continues to surprise us. Um, it's very hard to predict. And, you know, all around the country, we've got to continue to do a better job. And I think, I think we are, but we're not done yet. Just more blather, more blather, nothing from this guy. Did you, did you hear an answer in there? What we know is the stuff we've been saying all along is true. Well, hold on a second. If what you've been saying along is true, what about this huge real life case study of California versus Florida? 
And, and what Stephanie Rule said isn't even really correct. Florida's got better results. It's not that the results are close. Like that's that's, yes, accurate. But the more important assessment, the more important takeaway is no, no, no. Florida's actually done better than California while being open the whole time. So if all these things we're told to do, if all the mask, social distance, everything, this is really going to flatten the curve. It's really good. We need all these government mandates. We need all this propaganda all the time. Do this, do this, do this. We need social media companies to prevent open discussion. Social media companies are disgusting with the, with the censorship they're engaged in. Awful. The wokeness, the woke morons, these people that, that go work at these places now work in, you know, government relations or they work in, you know, media relations or marketing or PR or whatever. They don't know. And by the way, they don't know anything about technology or anything else. They, they just go work in these corporations. Right. They didn't build these things. And they're all about the wokeness. And they shut down necessary. They shut down necessary public debate on a policy issue. Because they wanted to believe they were right. Well, they were wrong. They were wrong. The people that said you couldn't talk about mask mandates, you couldn't question them, you couldn't talk about lockdowns, you couldn't say they didn't work. They're wrong. And they used brute force of censorship to try to convince people otherwise. They tried to shut down this discussion. They, tr they were a part of a massive lie here. And this remember, I'm not just having some random person that I'm playing you the the answers from here this is biden covid advisor andy slavitt this this is supposed to be the top the top expert on this this guy knows all the facts all the stuff you heard him asked about california and florida it's well you know it's really a lot of stuff and we don't know everything but we know we know that everything we tell you is right that was his answer eh, wrong wrong we can all see it i'm not letting this go this is important this is a reminder about the need to defend your freedom this is important as a reminder about the need to hold back government overreach. There's a lot of layers here. There's a lot of stuff at work. And we shouldn't just pretend like, OK, we're going to get past this pandemic pandemic soon. They're going to do this again. They want to do this again. They loved the control. They were drunk with the power. Look at Cuomo. Look at Newsom. Look at Whitmer. You think they're just going to say, oh, yeah. We, we don't ever want to be in a position where we get to determine whose business survives and thrives and whose business gets shut down as long as we say so. You don't, you don't think they like that power? These climate change lunatics? You don't think they, they want to use that ability for something else? And all you really have to know about this guy, Slavit, I mean, with Eddie, all you have to know is that he's now, I mean, you know, this, this for me is the intelligence test. The people who have, are suddenly double maskers let me be clear if you were double masking for you know if you're a public health expert or somebody who works in and by the way it's totally different people in a hospital setting who are dealing with sick patients you know whatever you know you know additions whatever whatever things they want to do i i of course you can understand that right because they're, they're clearly being exposed to virus all the time but in a in, in a setting where they know they're being exposed so of course they're going to take additional precautions this is also why they have those like papr hoods and all these things this is why they have much more than just a cloth mask in a lot of circumstances dealing with covid patients because they understand what the risks are but i'm talking about for everyday for everyday people who are supposed to be experts but aren't actually treating covid patients if they haven't been wearing two masks all along i just want to know why didn't they believe in the science Nine months ago, six months ago, three weeks ago. Why haven't they been wearing two masks all along? 
now suddenly they've discovered that this is more effective? Well, all you have to know about somebody is, are they suddenly a double masker? And if the answer is yes, they are a sheep. They're a person that cannot think for themselves. Now, I'm not talking to people that are made to do this, because guess what? That's coming your way, too. Already, you have a federal courthouse now in New York where the, where the rules are now, we want you to double mask. You're going to see more of it. I told you. It starts out with a, hey, this is more effective. And then it's, hey, maybe do this. And then it's, do this or else. Give it time. You'll probably have double masking on, air, on airplanes. Oh, yeah. Double mask on that airplane. Not enough to have a, a scarf or a, you know, one of those uh, gaiters or whatever. No, no. You, you got to have the full, the N95 and a cloth mask, all this stuff. Here's, here's a COVID advisor. Slav it. Loves the way those double masks feel. Play, t- play 11. Should we be wearing regular masks, two masks, N95 masks? What's the best recommendation at this point? Well, so if you're, if you're not wearing a mask at all, wearing a mask over the nose and mouth, well-fitting, bingo, that is the most important thing. Um, I wear a surgical mask with a cloth mask over it, and I do that because the surgical mask is good, but it doesn't fit as snugly as when I put a second mask over it. I think we're learning that the better the mask, the better. Not all of us can wear N95s. We need those for healthcare workers, but if you have those, those are the safest. Otherwise, you know, I think what I'm doing feels very effective. You can tell when your mask is snug, uh, and, and if it's not snug and if air is getting out and air is getting in, then it's not doing its job told you how many months ago they're going to claim after the second wave rips through the whole country and we don't stop it we don't even slow it they're going to claim that we didn't mask well enough that's going to be their answer because i knew and here we are exactly as i said so why is that because it's about understanding the mentality of the petty authoritarian it has nothing to do with science or medicine or some fancy degree from uh, from a, an Ivy League university in microbiology, which a lot of these people don't even have anyway, it has nothing to do with that. It's about understanding the mentality, looking at results. It's about logic and drawing truthful conclusions based on what people have told you and what has happened. If you can do that, you know what these lockdown clowns are going to say next, as I have. And Slavit is just another example of it. Oh, yeah, I can't explain to you why California is worse off than Florida, even with the lockdowns. I'm going to tell you that we can't open schools. It's too complicated, even though schools are open. And oh, yeah, now double masking is definitely the way to go. Suddenly, in the middle of February, 12 months into this pandemic. Sure. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Join the conversation and message Buck on Facebook, Instagram, or email teambuck at iheartmedia.com. He may read it on the show. It's it's not a trick question, and I feel like you guys have treated it like a trick question. I think people just want to know what the White House position is on whether or not teachers have to be vaccinated for kids to return safely to school. The CDC director, Rochelle Walensky, says the science is that teachers don't necessarily have to be vaccinated for kids to return. And I think people want to know what the White House position is on that. The White House position is that uh, and the president and vice president believe that teachers should be prioritized for receiving the vaccination, along with other frontline workers. And in at least 22 states in the District of Columbia, that's exactly what's happening. Prioritize is one thing, and I think there's wide agreement. They should be prioritized, and why not? Is it necessary? No, that's the question. It really is a yes, no question. 
Well, John, I think the real question, frankly, if I can be frank here, is what you're getting to is, is it safe for kids to go back to school? And the president it, it, and vice actually president... Actually not. In this case, that's not the question. The question is, is it safe for teachers to go back to school? And that's, and, and that, that's a very specific question in this case. And again, I'm not sure... I don't understand why it's a hard question to answer. It, it may be that you want every teacher to be vaccinated. It may be the answer is, yeah, teachers should, if they can, be vaccinated before they return to school, but it's not necessary. Well, John, I think the president has been clear, the vice president has mm. been clear, and I think I was really clear just now that it is the administration's position, the president and vice president believe, that teachers should be prioritized for vaccinations. She can't answer the question. They won't answer the question. And I, I, I thought that was an interesting exchange, even though I, I know it was on CNN, because I believe that at some level there are people who work at CNN, there are libs, there are Democrats out there right now who are are finding out for the first time about this Biden administration that they're actually a bunch of clowns and and they don't want to tell you the truth about school reopen. They want to keep running in these circles. They want to keep playing games because this is about politics. It is not about health. I think there are some people on the left, believe it or not, some some Democrats, at least, including uh, this John Berman at CNN, who are going, hold, hold on a second. It is safe for kids. We all know that. So is it or is it not safe for teachers to go back and do their jobs when you have already millions and millions of frontline workers of all kinds around the country who have been doing their jobs the whole time without vaccinations? Yes or no? Why are and because if, if the answer is no, then why are teachers so special? Is it because teachers give a lot of money to the teachers unions give a lot of money to Democrats? So are they really just politicizing schools here because of the Democrats? Oh, you know, they will never say that on CNN. But what they've realized is there is no other answer. There, there is nothing else. They've they've run out of maneuver room here. It's just keep now. It's just spinning circles. Just keep saying nonsense. It's exactly what what you heard there. Are schools safe to open? Yes. Should they be open? Yes. End of story. That's it. There's nothing else. But they won't say that because there's one hundred and twenty billion dollars riding on this covid relief bill for the schools and the teachers unions want all kinds of concessions. They want to they want to just squeeze every last drop of benefit they can out of this crisis for themselves, for their adult members, pretending they're doing it for kids. They're absolutely not doing anything for these kids. They're hurting children, actually. They're hurting their development. They're hurting them psychologically and they don't care. It's the other part of this. You got to remember. They simply don't care. They have more important priorities. You're seeing this good, good old Grandpa Joe. Grandpa Joe apparently doesn't care about the grandkids actually getting back to school anytime this year. Oh, no, but I'm sure his grandkids all go to private school, which have been open and which have been fine. Gee, I wonder why that is. Hmm. What's happening there? School choice when it comes to Democrats, a huge weakness for them because they have no principled argument to make. They can't even pretend. And it's true about these school lockdowns, too. They can't even pretend they have a principled argument. It doesn't exist. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Follow Buck on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Joe Biden was sold to the American people in this last election as a guy who nobody should be unnerved by. No one should be scared of. He's going to be just fine. He's been around so long. You can trust good old Joe. That's the pitch. That was what was bought, unfortunately, in this last election. It's where we are. 
And last night, you started to see what that actually looks like in even more detail with the CNN town hall. Now, town hall. now understand, now the CNN town hall is going to be skewed. They're going to pick things that make Democrats want to keep watching. And they're going to have people that it's almost like the CNN producers are writing some of these questions for them. You know, given our concerns about the lack of D&I or diversity and inclusion for senior corporate board seats in some of our major uh, populous states, what can you do? You know, stuff It's like, yeah, that's really what's on the top of every American's mind. There was a lot of covid talk last night and there was a lot of meandering nonsense about schools and why they haven't reopened. And really just some of the same stuff you've heard from Biden all along. So I wanted to dive into some of this because here's the basic the basic conclusion that we're going to come to together. Joe Biden is now a man of the left because that's what he has to be, because that's what the Democrat Party is. He doesn't have any real beliefs. There's no core principles. There's no policy goal in mind for him other than be Joe Biden. Do what the Democrat Party tells you get elected, I I suppose, once again. But now he's the president. He's got this job. He's going to do what they tell him. He wants the system to be backing him up. And he's just whatever they need him to be. That's the whole point. Obama ran as a uniter and then governed as a leftist. Biden ran as, well, good old blue-collar Joe that you know you could trust who's going to be a moderate. And he, too, is already governing like a leftist because this is what the Democrat Party is. The machinery around him is what really matters. That's what determines the direction of all of his policy goals. That's what determines his decision making more than anything else. Here he is. Well, let's go through some of these. First of all, this was the one that got a lot of attention immediately during the town hall. Joe Biden on CNN. There was no vaccine when Joe Biden came into office. This is what he said. Play two. And uh, the biggest thing, though, as you remember, when you and I, I shouldn't say it that way, as you remember, but when you and I talked last, we talked about it's one thing to have the vaccine, which we didn't have when we came into office, but a vaccinator. How do you get the vaccine into someone's arm? Which we we didn't have. Yeah, there, there was no vaccine. Joe Biden was just down there in a lab like a little chemist with some Bunsen burners. And he was like, no joke. I got the I got I got the coronavirus vaccine all fixed up here. No joke. Got it all good to go down in my Delaware lab. Full stop. Yeah. Now people jumped on this because, of course, it's not true. But I think it's worth noting that the media always gives him a pass. They were already people tweeting out from the blue check journo set. Oh, that's not what he that's not what he meant. Okay, but it's not their job to say what he meant. It's their job to call out what he said, something that is So clearly untrue, but that wasn't their first impulse. So you see from the media what they're really all about. You see from the media that this is going to be nothing but a cheerleading section for the next four years if they have their way the next eight. And as we know, whenever whenever all of a sudden Kamala Harris steps up into the role, whenever that will be, uh, they'll continue it for Kamala Harris too. this. This is the plan. We, We see all of this. Um, Another area where Biden uh, had to speak up was on 
ending the insanity of defund the police as a common Democrat talking point for at least right now at the national level. Play three. Defund the police is discussed as an option for reforming policing. However, there are communities where people live in fear, not of the police, but in fear of the violent gangs who commit crimes in those neighborhoods. How can we be sure that we don't over-legislate police officers so that they can't do their job to protect the law-abiding citizens who live in these high-crime neighborhoods and yet train officers to police with compassion? By number one, not defunding the police. We have to put more money in police work. So we have legitimate community policing and we're in a situation where we change the legislation. No one should go to jail for a drug offense. No one should go to jail for the use of a drug. They should go to drug rehabilitation. Always speaking around the issue. Good old Grandpa Joe here talking about not defunding the police. Now, isn't that interesting? Because you had so many Democrats over the summer who were willing to say this because the political winds have shifted a bit. One of the reasons is that places where there was some effort at either defunding or even just a conversation about defunding, like Minneapolis, have had big spikes in violent crime. All right. Have had big challenges with surges in criminality that have come right along with when BLM movement protests were happening and riots were happening. Well, what is the Democrat answer to this? We need more funding for community police. Throw more money at the problem. Last summer, it was we need less funding for police, which was idiotic. But people said that because the police become, in essence, to the far left in this country, instruments of the state that stand in the way of whatever the left wants. Right? The left believes that there's all this oppression in this country, that criminality comes from poverty, comes from oppression, comes from all these different things. And therefore, it's really our fault as a society. And so we should all suffer. If we have to all live in higher crime neighborhoods where people are randomly attacked, raped, murdered, assaulted. And as you know, most of the crime increase happens in major cities in predominantly minority neighborhoods, which means that it is predominantly minorities who suffer as a result of these bad policies. It's it's heinous when elite libs, which, you know, they do all the time on CNN and elsewhere, pretend that, oh, there's no there's no correlation between more police and less crime. There's no correlation between political backing for police officers and people being more safe on the streets. They say that while they have doormen on the Upper West Side and access to nearby precincts that are well staffed and that they know are going to show up quickly while they have, you know, the county sheriff, just a quick phone call away in Malibu, you know, whatever. No crime in their neighborhoods to begin with. And if there is crime, they're going to call the cops right away. Democrats are frauds on this issue. And now Joe Biden is walking away from where his party was on this just just a little bit because he realizes that it's bad for them. It's bad for them over the long run. It was one thing when BLM riots were happening all summer and it was about Trump and getting rid of Trump. But now, sure enough, they have to convince people that they're not the reason for this big spike in crime. And they are. And this is going to be an issue for them going into the midterms, too. But notice how Biden turns this into a conversation about no one should go to jail for using a drug. Is that really the problem? When I'm talking about shootings and homicides and rapes and assaults and burglaries, 
The Democrats go, oh, but you know, what about nonviolent drug offenses? Those are not the same thing. They, they, talking about one is not talking about the other. But remember, when Biden, when it was politically expedient for Biden to be Mr. Tough on Crime in the 90s, he put his name on that crime bill. Now he repudiates it. And then when it was useful to attack Trump, he was all in favor of BLM riots and was pretty quiet on the issue of defunding police. Let the activist class have it say there. And now that he's president and the crime numbers look terrible for last year and everybody can see it's BLM. Oh, now he's saying, well, we're not. Let's just get more money to them and create more training programs and community policing and essentially look at this as like a jobs program. Not not for just run of the mill cops, but I'm sure they're going to have more social workers and more. You know, they, they just want more, more spending, more taxpayer dollars. The spending is going to be mind blowing. You're going to see from this Biden administration. And I do worry about what it's going to do with inflation. And inflation is one of those things where you talk about it and people don't get scared. Uh, but when they actually feel it and see it and when it gets out of control, then they are scared. Because inflation can destroy an economy and with it a society. And we are playing a very dangerous game right now with how we're debasing our currency. I know they tell you it's not happening, but it's a function of math. And Biden's talking about one point nine trillion of spending for covid relief. That's just the beginning. They're going to go well beyond that. You just just wait and see. They're going to spend money like like nobody's ever spent money in this country's history. That's the Democrat plan. Modern monetary theory without calling it that. And Joe Biden's going to be leading the charge. But just remember, he's he's good old Grandpa Joe. He's not a radical. Sure, some of his policies make all the radicals in our midst seem happy. And he never seems to be able to stand up to the crazier side of the left wing and and tell them that this is not going to work out for the country in the long in the long run. No, whatever he needs to say when he needs to say it is what he says. That's the Joe Biden way. You're listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Nobody is suggesting, including the CDC in its recent out report, that you have large classes, congested classes. It's smaller classes, more ventilation, making sure that everybody has masks and is socially distanced, meaning you have less, fewer students in one room, making sure that everyone from the sanitation workers who work in the in, in the laboratories in the bathrooms and do and to do the uh, the uh, all the maintenance that they are in fact able to be protected as well making sure you're in a situation where you don't have the congregation of a lot of people as i said including the school bus including getting on a school bus so it's about needing to be able to socially distance smaller classes more protection and I think that teachers and the folks who work in the school, the cafeteria workers and others, should be on the list of preferred to get a vaccination. Open the schools after you do this list of 30 things that you're never going to do. Open up those K through eight schools right now. Once you triple the number of teachers, get all of them vaccinated, put in new ventilation systems, create plexiglass dividers for students in classrooms and insist the students wear masks while they're in the classroom. And, you know, while we're at it, I think we should probably double mask them. Right. Isn't that the new thing? Oh, we'll get to that. This is this is nonsense. Uh, The school should just be open. Children are at almost zero risk, as I keep saying. We all know it. 
but they pretend they're reasonable. Right. And that's a big part of Biden's appeal. The pretense of being reasonable, the facade of just being a a guy who kind of goes down the middle and, you know, you've known Joe, you're comfortable with Joe. Uh, why won't he just say the schools are going to open? They keep saying the schools are going to open safely. Ah, oh, there's that word. Slows the whole thing down. Uh, we have seen children suffer by the millions because of the bad decision making of adults. And the bad decision making of the government is also hurting our ability to get past this pandemic with as few casualties as possible. Teachers who are young do not need to be vaccinated. This, this is just the teachers unions making demands. In part because I'm sure some of their members are freaked out, but also because they want things. They want stuff. This is a virus that, as we know, as we've gone over so many times, the primary risk is age. That's it. Age. The secondary thing is then comorbidities. But they're just saying, well, teachers that are going to go in the classroom are going to get vaccines first. Really? So right now in New York City, if you're 64, you can't get the vaccine, even though you're many, many times over at higher risk than a 30 year old public school teacher. But that 30 year old public school teacher has gotten priority. The chance of that public school teacher getting covid and dying is something like one in 10,000, maybe. 60, 64 year old, not yet 65, so doesn't qualify right now. Doesn't yet qualify. I have a family member who falls in this category. Uh, my mom's 63. Doesn't qualify yet for the for the virus. I mean, for the uh, vaccine doesn't qualify yet. Um, because we're too busy giving it to 25 year old teachers. This is wrong. This is wrong. This is stupid government policy. And Biden is pushing it down our throats. But now everyone's seeing, oh, okay, so he's not actually some mega genius. He's not actually implementing some great plan, some strategy that nobody else could have foreseen. And we all should be so thankful. In fact, this guy's a buffoon. He's a clown. He's Bozo Biden. Always has been, always will be. But he was just what the Democrats needed in a, in a pandemic year where the, the false belief in a return to normalcy coupled with the unhinged hatred of the entire establishment, including many Republicans for Donald Trump, meant that they could get Joe Biden elected. They, they just wanted that power back. It didn't matter which Democrat it went to because you get the same policies. Whatever the Demo, whoever the Democrat is, you get the same policies. They recognize that. You think anything would be any better on the school issue right now? In some ways, actually, at least with Bernie Sanders, as loony as he is, he believes in some immigration restrictions and some trade deals benefiting American workers. I mean, he's a loony socialist. Don't get me wrong, but. With all the rest of the Democrats, you can pretty much get the same stuff. You get exactly what was promised by each and every one of them up on that stage. And they got to keep everybody scared, too. So Biden in that as well, where he's talking about how. So so the teachers thing, I mean, this is just a Democrat constituency getting their way. And, and then we also we're also going to spend four years here being lectured about the constant threat of of the danger of white supremacists. Play seven. I got involved in politics to begin with because of civil rights and opposition to white supremacists, the Ku Klux Klan and the most dangerous people in America continue to exist. That is the greatest threat to terror in America, domestic terror. And so I would make sure that my Justice Department and the Civil Rights Division is focused 
heavily on those very folks. And I would make sure that we, in fact, focus on how to deal with the rise of white supremacy. And you see what's happening in the studies that are beginning to be done, maybe at your university as well, about the impact of former military, former police officers on on the growth of white supremacy in some of these groups. You may remember in one of my debates with the former president, I asked him to condemn the Proud Boys. He wouldn't do it. He said, stand by, stand ready, or whatever the phrase exactly was. It is a bane on our existence. It has always been, as Lincoln said, we have to appeal to our better angels. And these guys are not, and women are, in fact, demented. They are dangerous people. Nobody likes white supremacists. They're disgusting. But also, why is America supposed to live in constant fear of this group of white supremacists when I sit here and tell you I've still never met one, never come across one, only seen them on the news on occasion, and that's it. And also, where does white supremacy as a concept, where is it really defined these days? Because as the left defines it, it's white supremacists to oppose renaming a school that's named for Abraham Lincoln. That's a vestige of white supremacy. So I just want to know what exactly are the parameters here. Uh, but Joe Biden knows keep everybody scared, create this enemy in the minds of the Democrats and also use it. He mentioned the military and law enforcement, use it as the basis for all kinds of indoctrination into left wing critical race theory and wokeism and all the rest of it as a means of preventing the spread of white supremacy. Oh, okay. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Join the conversation and message Buck on Facebook, Instagram, or email teambuck at iheartmedia.com. He may read it on the show. We've got our friend Ben Ferguson with us now. He is down there in Texas dealing with this crazy storm. Uh, he is the host of the Ben Ferguson Show. Great podcast you should all download and check out and listen to. Ben, thanks so much, man. How you doing? We're surviving down here. There's like no power, no running water, and uh, I witnessed two fights break out the grocery store. So besides that, it just seems like everybody's getting along. Tell us, what it, what has happened here? I mean, we think of Texas as the energy state right all the oil and natural gas and and yet you guys have a freak storm i mean the weather is negative right it's it's below zero negative two degrees i think i saw for parts of texas yeah. that haven't seen those temperatures in a hundred years so what's happened with all the power well you got a couple different things that has happened and and one of those is Obviously, Houston is never uh, where I am right now. We, we've never experienced in, in literally my lifetime this type of weather and this many days in a row below freezing, which has put a massive strain on the power grid. Well, you then put in all these wind turbines, and a lot uh, of, of West Texas has these wind turbines that were put in with all this green alternative energy under the Obama years, and all these tax incentives and tax breaks. And so the grid started to you know, rely on these and about 50 to 60 percent of them froze up where they wouldn't spin anymore. So the, the, the hilarious part is we're now using helicopters, which are burning fossil fuels, to then spray a chemical agent on them, which is a petroleum byproduct, to then unfreeze uh, these uh, turbines that were supposed to be spinning. So you add that in with this massive amount of power, you know, stress on the grid, everybody's home. 
And you've got about 30% of all the people in the state without power, but it's not just like you're without power and this is, you know, not a great day. I mean, you look at my in-laws, for example, you're talking about in their house, it's, it's below freezing because it's been below freezing for so many days and we got down to zero degrees and one negative one and two degree temperatures. So you, you're not going to win that battle. And uh, it, it's just been crazy. I went to the grocery store earlier today and, and now what you have is you, you have these arbitrary rules, right? That you can't serve food or have target open unless you have running water with bathrooms. And now they're trying to figure out how to do emergency orders. And a lot of these liberal mayors like in Houston didn't think ahead. So Target, you know, they could be open right now, except for this arbitrary rule that nobody in the local liberal governments, places like uh, Houston and Dallas and, 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 you know, Austin and San Antonio, they, they didn't think, hey, maybe we should maybe we should have some sort of emergency plan that if this does happen, that will allow these stores to continue to open and not have this bathroom water rule because all these pumping sites have frozen up and they didn't get and they overheated because they were having so much stress on the pipeline. And so now you've got the majority of a massive city like Houston without running water. The entire city is under a, a, a boil water, you know, a directive. But, you know, my house, we have zero running water. We have nothing to the house. And they're saying this could last for several more days with these temperatures. And, and again, it goes back to leadership. A, a mayor should have understood that there might be some exceptions to some rules that should be made in advance so that Target could stay open and not be closed. And they, they were literally, we went up there and talked to the manager and said, hey, we're trying to get somebody when it's 20 degrees outside to deliver us a porta potty because if they do that, we're then allowed to open our doors. Until the porta potty gets here, we can't sell you water, we can't sell you food, we can't sell you groceries. Uh, and that is what happens in these big cities. Wait, this is crazy. Can, can I just jump in? And by the way, we appreciate that you're joining us when we know that Landlines are down. Power is down. We, we, we've got you on FaceTime audio, right? We can get through via Internet audio only. So we, we appreciate that you've managed to find the one communication method that's available right now, given the circumstances. So thank you for that, Ben. Uh, yeah. And Ben Ferguson, everyone, you should check out his podcast, The Ben Ferguson Show. But I, the, the, you're talking about these rules. Why aren't they giving people food in the middle of this, you know, extreme weather situation that's claimed dozens of lives already? What's going on? I don't understand. Yeah, it's 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 literally they have arbitrary rules that if you do not have running water, that you're not allowed to open your doors to your business. Is that a so COVID thing or is that just a rule that's just a rule? That's that's a, that's a city ordinance in 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 Harris County or county ordinance, and you have these elected officials that could have easily made a, a emergency declaration to bypass that rule, so that Walmart, for example, could open. Like the Walmart, it literally went there. They have security guards out front, and they're telling people you cannot come in. We're not open because we don't have running water. Now they have the the, the shelves are stocked with food. But you're not allowed to open your doors unless you have running water. That is their rule until the mayor decides to, to do some sort of emergency declaration. And we're going on now day two and a half. Ben, what what is the, the, the blame here, which a lot of people are going to be focusing on? You know, there were initially plenty of people that were saying, well, the the wind turbines were frozen. And there were a lot of comments about that. But as I looked into this more, well, yeah, the, the wind turbines froze, but so did 
different connectors and things on the natural gas and oil pipelines. Right. So it's not just that wind turbines failed here. So we, I think we have to be clear on that for everybody Sure. Um, that that got, you know, and I know you are clear, but I'm just saying that got a lot of attention last night. And now today people are saying, well, hold on a second. That's not really it. The guy in charge of what is it? The the only non-federally overseen state power grid in the country is the one that Texas has. Right. So Correct. the guy in charge of this, uh, what's it, Air ERCOT or something, whatever the the, yeah. the, the acronym is, yeah, ERCOT, uh, he's basically saying, look, this is a, a freak situation here. You know, it's like a freak accident almost with this weather. We're doing the best we can. Other people are saying it's gross incompetence. What's what? What's the truth? I mean, who's right? Well, I think the fact that you've never had snow, for example, in my my entire lifetime on the beach, for example, in Galveston should tell you something. Yes, this is a this is a, you know, hundred year type scenario. Temperatures that the majority of people living in Houston have never seen in their lifetime if they've lived here their entire life. Uh, and, and, and even if it goes down overnight, usually once one time, by the next day, it's up in the 30s, upper 30s, 40s, right? And, and look, five days from now, we're going to be in the 60s and 70s. So uh, I don't know if it's a, a, quote, point the finger moment as it is. It just shows your vulnerability uh, to what happens when, you, when, you, when you're not expecting something like this. But I do think what you really is going to come out of this and what people have to learn is, is that the government does have a role to play in preparation and, and making sure that the rules that are holding people back from getting into these chaotic situations. I mean, I went to ATB, which is like the large Kroger or, or whatever you want to call it where you live in the country. Randall's, it's, a, it's the number one grocery store in Texas. And you had two people getting fistfights that I witnessed, and I walked out. I was like, I, I'm not going to risk my life over a gallon of milk fighting over – one was fighting over poultry, and one was fighting over a bottle of water because you have this – you know, you have no water now. And, and this is – this is, again, when you have all the fast food restaurants being forced to close, all the restaurants are closed because you don't have water. And then then these Walmarts that, that, that do have, quote, delis, which means they're under a restaurant. And you have uh, these other places like Whole Foods that have a hot food section, right? So they're technically kind of like a restaurant. They've all been forced to shut down until somebody gets their head out of the rear end and local government and says we're going to change the rules under emergency order. Please start giving food out to the public, which are clearly getting extremely restless. You had more than 500 people sitting out in the sleet and the snow and the rain this morning at the HEB waiting in line to get in line just to try to get food at 10 a.m. So what happens now? What can we do to well, what can be done, I should say, at the Texas state level? Or I don't know if the federal government's even able to bring much assistance here. I mean, how much longer are people expecting to be going through this? Uh, look, I, I mean, the water, they're saying, could easily be an issue through the weekend. Uh, it's Wednesday now. And so if you look at that, it's going to be a problem. Uh, if they don't do an emergency declaration to, to allow these stores to get back online quickly, uh, then you have an issue of, you know, expiration dates that come into play that, that the manager was telling me this morning that I was talking to. And then you have a third problem, which is some of the roads and highways have been shut down that a lot of the delivery trucks can't deliver because the people that would empty the trucks aren't allowed to come to work because they're shut down. So now you have a supply chain issue. So I don't think this is going to fix itself probably until next week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, uh, when you when you finally just have a, hey, we're gonna, this, is, this is what we created. We didn't fix the problem. We didn't think ahead. And, and again, I, I go back to local governments. 
If anybody wants to blame somebody in these major cities, look at who you voted for, look at who you elected, and look at what they did not do in preparation to think about these basic scenarios that they should have thought of. Uh, But this is happening in major liberal cities all over Texas. Ben Ferguson, everybody, check out the Ben Ferguson podcast. And Ben, before we let you go, I know you know about the very sad news today about the passing of the man who is who's the greatest in our industry, in our business of all time. You're a real radio guy um, and you're one of the radio guys I respect, who's one of my peers. So I just wanted wanted you to to tell everybody your thoughts on what it means that this this Titan, this icon. Yeah. um, what, What what are your thoughts? I, I rarely get choked up, Buck, uh, but when I got the text, I did, and it's because I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today, and I think you would agree with me, you wouldn't be doing what you're doing today if it wasn't for Rush Limbaugh. Uh, the first radio talk show I ever heard in my life was in my mom's blue Ford Aerostar van uh, 32 years ago, um, and it was a guy by the name of Rush Limbaugh, and I remember listening to, to Rush and fell in love with talk radio because of Rush Limbaugh, and he saved AM radio when people were going to FM for music and stereo, and they and these operators were trying to figure out, what are we going to do? What are we going to put on AM? And this guy by the name of Rush Limbaugh came about, and, and they syndicated him, and they went, he went viral uh, before we even knew what that meant. And I remember listening to him and just saying to myself, gosh, if I could just do what he does and be able to talk to him. I got into radio when I was very young. I got in my first show when I was 12 years old. And I remember meeting Rush for the first time. I got to go to D.C. and there was this, uh, his, his right-hand man was a, a man named Kit Carson. Uh, I knew Kit, yeah. Several, several years ago. And Kit invited me to come into the original EIB studio with a golden microphone and let me sit down and take a picture and showed me around. And I met Rush for the first time there. And then several other times we, we crossed paths at, at talk radio conventions uh, that he would that he would appear at. But... You know, I look at, you know, some of my good friends like Mark Levin and, and, and you and others in this industry. And I think we can all agree that, that we all know that no one will replace Russell Limbaugh. No one will ever be uh, what Russell Limbaugh was. He, he was the greatest of all time and will always be. And no one will duplicate what he accomplished in his career. And not just accomplish. I'm not talking about like, you know, accolades. I'm talking about changing the hearts and minds of a country and letting and bringing people to the ideas of freedom in the first and second amendment explaining what it means and fighting for freedom you know guys like i would argue uh, you know whether it be george bush or ronald reagan or for that matter donald trump i i don't think they would have ever gotten to where they got if it wasn't for a guy like rush limbaugh who was able to take some of what they said and explain it in layman's terms the importance of it to the american people uh, it is a, a sadness uh, that, that he has passed, and, and, and this industry will never be the same. But but what an amazing legacy. You, you look back and you think about it, and you, you just you think about COVID, and you know people that passed away, and you start, I think, thinking about, you know, death at a younger age. I certainly have thought about it a lot more recently. My dad almost passed away from COVID, and luckily he didn't. But you really start to, to think about those types of things. And I, I look at what Limbaugh did, and you just got to think, wow, what an amazing legacy he left behind and and look at all of the careers that were created because of what he started uh, and i say to him his family and, and everyone around him on his team thank you uh, from both snarely to his wife to all of them uh, you and i wouldn't be doing what we're doing today if it wasn't for him well said ben ferguson everybody follow ben listen to his work ben couldn't agree with you more and everything you said about rush and please man stay safe and stay warm down there in texas we'll we'll check in on you soon 
We'll do it, buddy. Have a great day. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Follow Buck on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. What is President Biden doing for my small business? First and foremost, he nominated a woman to lead the Small Business Administration who formerly worked there. Second thing is he signed an executive order to make it easier for uh, minority-owned small businesses to get access to the funding uh, that they need. And third is that uh, in the American Rescue Plan, there's currently about $60 billion uh, to help a range of small small businesses uh, get access to additional funds. The first thing she says is there's a woman in charge of the small business program. You better get ready for more of this. The identity politics from Democrats is going to be one of the defining characteristics of everything they do in office. You're going to get a whole lot of that. But then you also have the more more extreme identity politics that you should be aware of um, with, for example, in New York City, this public school principal who sent pamphlets home to white parents okay this is the story mark fetterman the principal of east side community high school a graphic with eight white identities okay these are the eight different kinds of whiteness in society i'm i'm being serious this is a principal at a new york city public high school and here are the different versions of being white he takes this from a professor at northwestern university named Barner Hess and the eight different kinds of whiteness. Here's what he here's the, This is the pamphlet he sent home to parents. There is a regime of whiteness and there are action oriented white identities. People who identify with whiteness are one of these. It's about time we build an ethnography of whiteness since white people have been the ones writing about and governing others. Number one, white supremacist clearly marked white society that preserves the names and values white superiority. Number two, white voyeurism wouldn't challenge a white supremacist, desires non-whiteness because it's interesting and pleasurable, seeks to control the consumption and appropriation of non-whiteness and a fascination with culture like consuming black culture without the burden of blackness. Three, white privilege may critique supremacy, but a deep investment in questions of fairness and equality. Four, white benefit, sympathetic to a set of issues, but only privately, won't speak and act in solidarity. Five, white confessional. Some exposure of whiteness takes place, but as a way of being accountable to people of color after and seeking validation from them. Six, white critical. Seven, white traitor. Eight, white abolitionist. Changing institutions, dismantling whiteness and allowing whiteness to and not allowing rather whiteness to reassert itself. This is a whole spectrum of what they're what they're telling people, all white people are on this spectrum and you get to choose this. This is the kind of critical race theory that is not only being taught to children, but is being taught now to adults, is being forced upon people in in uh, the federal government and is even being sent home to parents with their children from school. Well, when they're able to be in school, it's a whole other conversation these days. There there's no there's no middle ground. There's no I don't care about this. There's no none of that stuff. You are either a white supremacist or a white voyeurist, or a white privileged person, or a white benefit person, or you do what the left says. There's, there's, no, there's no other way, right? This is a spectrum meant to get you to comply with identity politics, and it's being taught to people across the country, including in New York City public schools. You're listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Unreported truths about COVID-19 and lockdowns. Alex Berenson is the author. He has been on this all along, and there's a lot of stuff he's been very right on. And we are, are proud that we've been trying to get his message and, and his research out there because a lot of it now, you look back and you think, hmm, who was willing to speak the truth? Alex Berenson <laughs> is with us. Alex, thanks so much. Look, thanks for having me. So let's start with schools. Because that's the easiest one for me. So we're at a point now where everyone's finally seeing that there are people in charge, whether it's Biden or Andy Slavitt or Walensky at the CDC, all these different all these different people who are sort of speaking in circles and spewing nonsense, because at the end of the day, we can all see schools have been open when they're public. And, I mean, when they're private and parochial and they're fine. The data shows that public schools can be open and they're fine. And so this is just now teachers unions don't want to open schools, right? I mean, there, there seems to me to be no real reason that schools aren't just open tomorrow. That, that's absolutely correct. I mean, you know, they're fine in Florida. They're fine in Texas. They're fine in Sweden. They're fine in France, for God's sakes. OK. And, you know, France doesn't it doesn't exactly uh, have a weak, uh, you know, teachers union. They're fine everywhere except a handful of blue states where they cannot be open until every student is given an escape pod and, you know, each school building is knocked down and rebuilt and everyone gets 18 vaccinations and the teachers all get bonus checks of $100,000 for their hard work. Okay, it's a joke. And unfortunately, school children who are now heading into their second year of no school are paying the price. And I mean, what are some of the prices when we talk about this? I mean, can we... I think it's important to make this real for everybody. I, I think that there's this perception, OK, well, the kids are at home and they're just watching on Zoom and then they watch their cartoons afterwards. And there's there's real damage being done to kids here. Well, there is. I mean, it's a little bit hard right now because, you know, although we obsessively count every COVID case and every COVID death and, you know, a little bell rings on CNN every time one comes in. We do a terrible job counting overdose deaths and, a, and an even worse job counting suicides. So. Right now, we don't have good data on suicides at all from last year, although anecdotally, in places like Las Vegas, there have been a lot of suicides. And I hear from parents. I mean, you know, usually it's, they've heard about a suicide in their community. Uh, we know overdose deaths are way up, and that's true uh, sort of in all age ranges. So, so the damage is real. The damage that, you know, you can't quite get to clinically in terms of how many kids have, you know, moderate depression or severe anxiety uh, the numbers look bad. We don't really know what they are. Um, you know, you, I've heard that, you know, in some states there's essentially no psychiatric beds for children right now, but I haven't been able to confirm that. Uh, so, so, you know, just anecdotally, everything is pointing the wrong way. It is, look, Buck, it is not good for children not to be able to socialize with other children. Forget the schooling aspect of it, although they're not learning anything either. They're not they're being told to be frightened of strangers. I'm not strangers. They're being told to be frightened of their friends. They're being told to be frightened of anyone, you know, who could have a disease that could kill them, even though, you know, honestly, this disease is very, very low risk to them. They're being told to be frightened of the outside world. That cannot be healthy. Alex, I also want to ask you for, for what, you're, what you're seeing now. I mean, there's been people along the way who have been sharing these graphs about about lockdown measures specifically mandatory masking mandatory business closures that's really you know in broad stroke that's what lockdown has meant in a lot of places yes. and and the graphs that you can see have been showing pretty clearly that anybody who looks 
that you can't make. You, you really can't make heads or tails. You know, some places it goes up a little bit here, goes up a little bit there, goes down here, goes down there. It's certainly not working the way we were promised. But with Florida and California now, and God bless Governor Ron DeSantis, who's willing to just get out there and say, we yes. did this the right way. Other people did not. Yeah. Yes. What you know, they, they asked um, one of the Andy Slavitt, right, one of the Biden covid advisors. He was asked recently by MSNBC, well, look at California, look at Florida. Why were lockdowns worth it? And he just basically spun in circles and said some nonsense about how, well, we know what works. Well, right. but well, apparently you don't. No, you don't know what works. And it's true. If I showed you a graph of Florida versus California or Sweden versus Finland or France versus uh you know, Belarus, you would not be able to tell which was which. You would not be able to tell when a mask mandate was imposed, when it was lifted, you know, uh, North Dakota versus Minnesota. There is no on-the-ground, real-world evidence that any of this stuff works. And, you know, DeSantis, I think, has decided the truth is his best ally, and being aggressive about it is his best ally. So Florida put out this graph yesterday showing that you know, they have far, far more children. I mean, basically all the, all the schools are open in Florida. And their their pediatric uh, COVID rate is lower than California's where all the schools are closed. So, you know, the, the people, people have had it, certainly with the school stuff. But here's what I think. I mean, I think this is an enormous problem for the Democratic Party on two levels. First of all, you know, obviously teachers unions are big contributors to the party. Uh, you know, they're big, they're big poll work, you know, poll, you know, sort of get out the vote workers for the Democrats. Yeah, it's machinery. It's so, money and machinery for the Democrats, for sure. Exactly. So they so Biden knows that he'll piss off the teachers unions if he if he speaks out. But but he also knows that he can't do anything about it. Right. Because the schools are locally controlled. So it's all downside for him. So what is he doing? He's got this sort of absurd you know, list of boxes that have to be checked before schools open. But there's something else that's happening that's worse, which is they're now trying to scare people about yet another wave. This idea that the, the variants and unfortunately, the virus is not cooperating with them. The virus is basically going away right now. And there's no evidence it's going to come back. Yeah, well, can I ask, why, why doesn't yeah. CNN, Alex, have on the ticker? Yeah, they've got the number of total deaths over the 12 months of the pandemic. Shouldn't they also have that hospitalizations are down? And I don't want to give the wrong number. I know it was down 20 or 30 percent a couple no, weeks no, no. ago. I think it's like they're 50. Now, they're now down more than 50 percent. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and new positive tests, you know, which we insist on calling cases are down close to 70 percent. And that's not because we're testing less. It's because the positivity rates have gone down. This wave is over. There may or may not be another wave. You can make a real case that basically so much of the population has now been infected and recovered that there won't be another wave. We don't know that yet. But if you're the Democrats, your only choice here is to try to scare people because the politics of reopening schools are so badly against you right now. And look what's happening to them in California. Newsom, you know, 10 months ago, Newsom was a hero of the of the pandemic. It was a California miracle. Right now, Newsom is facing a very, very serious recall effort. So, uh, you know, I think I think they're sort of aware that if the school's dam breaks, they may, you know, it may sort of be the end of the pandemic. What do you make of of the Cuomo, uh, the Cuomo fiasco right now where you have his aide saying, yeah, we hid stuff from Trump. By the way, this is this doesn't surprise you or me or anybody else who's been following the story. The part of it that I, I wanted your particular take on, though, is he's now saying, well, yeah, we sent COVID positive seniors into the nursing homes. But if you look at this graph over here and you look at, you know, you carry the one, 
It was just the staff that brought the virus in. I mean, how, is, is there any epidemiological argument you can make that sending people with COVID into an enclosed space wouldn't make it worse? I mean, what, what is he talking about? Well, of course not. No, I think what you just said is the most interesting part of this. It's not that you and I didn't know about this. I mean, the New York Post was reporting about this last April and May. It's why now? Well, why now? Because now Trump is gone. OK, so now the media can actually start to report honestly on some aspects of this. I mean, there are aspects of this that they still don't understand, but this is one they actually do understand. And so they can actually report semi-honestly on it. And, you know, Cuomo was another hero. of the, Cuomo and Newsom and, you know, Whitmer were the three big heroes. And DeSantis was the villain. And, you know, I mean, <laughs> I, you know, thank God that DeSantis had the guts to, you know, to stay the course. So we have one big state that's different than all that's the right. others. That's right. If, if and I've been telling everybody this, if DeSantis had bent the knee and as Texas, by the way, did, which yep. really upsets me, if DeSantis had bent the knee, it wouldn't matter what the numbers were because we would have no comparison. And they that's would right. say, we sure we lost, you know, we lost 500,000 lives. We would have lost two million if you hadn't listened to us. Then, you know, that would be the answer. Of course, of course, of course. So, you know, so, but he didn't. And, you know, think about how close we were to having Andrew Gillum. You know, as the governor of California or, or, or as Florida. Florida, yeah, and and there would be nobody, right? So, so yeah, I, look, uh, it, it is interesting that Cuomo is suddenly, I mean, is suddenly under fire now, and I, I think, I do think that we're going to see more, both because of the realities of the fact that this is appears to be ending, and you know, the efforts to say it's not are more and more desperate, and because of the fact that Trump is no longer president. <laughs> And now now I have to ask about I got a couple more things for you, Alex, because, you know, you actually look at this stuff and, and will tell the truth. I've been making jokes on Twitter for at least six months about and, and not really jokes, but sort of poking at how it, th this isn't going to work. And they're going to say, oh, we just discovered it turns out you need two masks or an N95 <laughs> mask. And, and I'm on record. I mean, I keep telling everybody this. I'm not I'm not saying, oh, I predicted or whatever. I've been saying this. There are tweets stretching back at least into the summer where I've been saying this. And now, sure enough, you had Fauci kind of muse out loud about it, but then said, well, actually, there's no data. And then suddenly the CDC comes up with data. And now it's actually the smart thing to do. And even a federal courthouse is requiring it here in New York. Double masking. I mean, are, this is this is to me, this is starting to feel like it's an anxiety based mental illness for people. <laughs> Well, I mean, look, there was never any evidence that, that a standard cloth or surgical mask did any good in terms of protection. Essentially no evidence, very, very, very low evidence it did any good in terms of source, uh, you know, control transmission. Anybody who looked at it could see that. The real world epidemiological data supported that. So, I mean, so what is the what does the CDC do? You, you do know where the study comes from. It's not it's not based on real people. It's mannequins. It is literally mannequins. And the joke is, like, if you're a dummy, you should wear two masks because that's what they did. Um, and so, so no, two masks aren't going to work because here's the thing. An N95, which may provide some minor protection, um, although, you know, it's sort of the jury's a little bit out on that. But N95s, if you fit them properly, they may provide some minor protection. They're uncomfortable. Nobody's going to wear an N95 all day. Even doctors and nurses have to be trained to wear them, and they don't like wearing them. So if you can somehow get two masks on tightly enough that, you know, it actually, you know, adheres to your face and maybe there's some uh, some protection going on, although it's not clear there would be, you're not going to want to wear it. Okay, that's fundamentally in the real world. People don't like wearing masks. Okay, and and they don't wear them properly, most of them. Beyond, I mean, beyond the filtration issues, they just don't wear them right. 
We're speaking to Alex Berenson. Alex, can we? I want to. I want to get more on va- into vaccines with you, which is obviously the next place we got to go. Can you give us one second? We'll come right back. Sure, sure. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Join the conversation and message Buck on Facebook, Instagram, or email teambuck at iheartmedia.com. He may read it on the show. All right, we're back with Alex Berenson, author of Unreported Truths About COVID-19 and Lockdowns. Okay, so <laughs> double masking is not going to save us. You and I know that for sure. Yep. Uh, and and, I, and we've, we've seen now the lockdowns, they have actually no answer as to why the Florida <laughs> versus California comparison looks so bad for California. Okay, now let's get to how the heck do we get out of this, Alex? Because Fauci saying we're going to mask as of a week or two ago, he said we're going to mask and social distance and do all, until at least the end of this year, which to me means next spring or summer. I mean, that's <laughs> right. what I, when Fauci says end of this year, I'm hearing we're at least 15 months away from these lunatics leaving us alone. Where are we with the vaccines? Because that's the only hope that I think we have that at some point it just becomes too crazy to put society through this. How is the vaccination actually affecting our return to normalcy? Okay, so here, so you, you aren't going to like this answer. <laughs> the problem is the vaccines don't seem to work as well in the real world as the clinical trial data suggested. And the second problem with the vaccines is that the side effects appear, profile appears to be at least as serious as the clinical trial data suggested, which was pretty serious. So if you look at Israel, Israel... And, and the UAE is another example, but the UAE is using a different vaccine, so put them aside. Israel has vaccinated basically everybody at high risk. Okay, essentially, if you define high risk as over 60, over 70, and when I say vaccinated, I mean fully vaccinated. They've got both doses of the Pfizer vaccine. Most of those people were vaccinated three to four weeks ago. They were vaccinated by the end of January, um, if not, you know, sort of late January. The, the epidemic has not gone away in Israel. Okay, it's actually gone away faster in the U.S. and the U.K. and in, in Europe than Israel. The, the reason, there's a good theoretical reason for this, okay? The theoretical reason for this is that Pfizer put 40,000 people in its clinical trials for the vaccine, okay? And they showed strong efficacy. How many of those 40,000 people were over the age of 85? Five. They didn't test the vaccine in the people who actually are at high risk of dying from COVID, so they don't know whether the vaccine protects those people. And by the way, if it's a 95 95 percent effectiveness, when you're talking about 30,000 people, only five in that age range, the numbers don't don't look so great in that regard. So that's that's right. So so what they showed is that in a population that is significantly healthier than the population that gets sick and dies from covid, the vaccine is pretty good at stopping people from getting mild or moderate infections. Okay, that's what the clinical trials actually showed. And they also showed that a lot of people get really sick after being vaccinated, especially the second dose. Okay, you get the second dose, you can have a high fever, you can have bad aches and pains, you can have a lot of problems. So here's the thing. So many people now are getting the second dose and having these problems. We are not going to get to anything like, quote unquote, you know, uh, 70 or 80 percent of people that we supposedly need to get to herd immunity through vaccinations. And... We don't even know if the vaccine is going to cut death significantly in the population that's most at risk. So so here's how we're going to get to herd immunity. We're going to get to herd immunity the old fashioned way by people getting this and recovering from it. And there's considerable evidence now that, you know, at least 100 million Americans, maybe significantly more than 100 million Americans have already gotten. I mean, there will be people that will hit the roof over me even asking this, Alex. But are are we is there a real chance that we're going to look back at this whole thing, everything, all the stuff that's happened and realize 
that basically the virus virus and that it, it, it ended when we got to herd immunity through just everyone getting infected and or getting the vaccine. Yes, there's a yes, there's a real chance of that. The problem is I'm not sure that anyone will ever admit it, except the people who've been talking about it from the beginning, because it's such a giant failure of public policy, such a waste, so dangerous to, you know, uh, young people and just such a monumental screw up by the public health establishment. I don't know how to get them to admit that. But yes, like so the, the vaccine- we, we have two minutes, Alex. I, I just, just got to ask you. So how do we get our lives back? How do we get our lives? I mean, this is I've been so angry at America in general because, you know, I was not like not wearing a mask until they finally said they're going to kick me out of my building in New York. You know, so yeah. I was one of these people that yeah. was like, OK, like I get. But if more people were just saying enough is enough, you know, at least on some of these issues like the schools, we'd be OK. How do we get our lives back? I mean, I don't know. I, I, I don't know that, you know, the schools thing might be the driver. OK, but people feel powerless and. And, uh, you know, and they feel and they're told that they're they, you know, they don't care about other people if they just speak the truth about this. I mean, my hope, I guess, is that at some point the numbers are down so far that no one can argue about it anymore. But, you know, I don't know how low they'd have to get. And then, you know, the people who've been trying to scare you will still be trying to scare you. And the vaccines, again, herd immunity you know, combined with some vaccine protection is going to reduce the number of cases a lot. But the vaccine is not is not going to solve this problem. So I I don't know, Buck. Here's what I know. The pressure on people like you and me is going to continue. And I I, I just want to I want to throw this out there. So I I wrote a book last year or wrote in 2019. It came out uh, a few days ago called The Power Couple. It has nothing to do with COVID. It's a novel. You know, I'm a novelist. You know, I wrote these John Wells novels. Okay, The Power Couple basically has been punished by places like the New York Times that won't review it or mention it because they don't like me and you talking about COVID. So, so like, the, the, the pressure of cancel culture and the pressure of sort of, uh, you know, you are a bad person for, for, you know, disputing our public health response on this is only going to get worse. And I don't know how we turn it around. As I'm talking to you right now, Alex, and I'm telling everybody the truth, uh, I'm actually logging into Amazon. The power couple available right now? Right now. Buying your book right this second. I advise everyone else, go on Amazon.com right now, the power couple, Alex Berenson, to thank this man for his work on this and also support people that are speaking out and doing what they need to do. I just bought it, so I'm going to read it. Alex Berenson, everybody. (laughs) Alex, thanks so much. Thank you, Buck. You're in the Freedom Hut. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Get the latest from Buck at BuckSexton.com. Rock and roll, fellow patriots. It's time for Roll Call. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton, Team Buck at iHeartMedia.com. And I know a lot of you are going to have a lot of thoughts for me over the next 24, 48 hours. And, And please do write in. We'll also do a uh, we'll be doing we're doing Facebook lives every night right around um, right around five, five forty ish. I'd say five thirty, five forty. So we'll try to try to get those in a more regular rhythm because I, I really like being able to, you know, have some of you write to me in real time and I answer. And sometimes I get the dog with me Tallulah, So we'll, we'll do more of that. I promise. Um Let's uh, let's get to this now. Pablo writes, hey, Buck, Shields High. I was listening to your your podcast on President's Day and started thinking, why? 
Why did the left prop up and protect Cuomo, Newsom, and a myriad of other leftists? And then it dawned on me, they did this not only because these people were complaining the loudest, but doing the opposite of what the president wanted. Now their chickens have come home to roost. It doesn't matter to them how they look in the end if the result is Trump is defeated. They were willing to implement policies that endanger or take lives to do this. Keep up the good fight. I have one more thought. I like when you use the term good faith. Most laws are written with good faith in mind, and you're correct when you say there's no good faith on the left. Uh, so a few, a few things here. Um, let, me say, let me say this. The, the people that were held up as heroes during the early days of COVID, the governors, I mean, held up as heroes, and of course Fauci and some of the others, it was primarily for their anti-Trump value. It wasn't only, but it was primarily for their anti-Trump value. So that meant that their results and whether they were right, whether it was true, none of that really mattered. None of that was really important to them, Um, at least not nearly as important as being a method of attack against President Trump. Remember, it was in an election year, too. I mean, they hate Trump, but they hate Trump even more than they normally do when we're talking about convincing people that he's the worst person ever and that he needs to be defeated at the ballot box. So that's that's what I got for you on that one, Pablo. Madeline. Hello, Baca producer Mark. The other day I had an epiphany at work while listening to your podcast. I think I figured out why society seems not to be in an urgent rush to get back to normal. I've noticed that nobody or anything is held accountable anymore for not getting things done correctly. COVID has become the de facto excuse for everything not getting done. It is almost like accountability has disappeared and people like it. I see it in all age groups. P.S. I tried to do the bicycle commute thing in order to save gas money. It wasn't the cars in the road I was afraid of. It was the other bicyclists in Austin. They got mad at me for trying to follow traffic and safety rules. I got yelled at and cussed at all the time. They are militant, crazy, and don't mind running you over. No thanks. I will pay for the gas and ruin the environment. Shield side. Thanks for all your hard work and keeping us informed. Uh, Madeline, a few things here. I do believe that there is a a larger percentage of the population than we would have guessed before this whole pandemic that kind of likes our, our Hobbit lifestyles, if you will, that kind of likes, you know, you stay home, you know, as long as the grocery stores are full and the internet's running and you can watch your Hulu or your Netflix, there's no parties or socializing. You don't have to show up in person to do your job for so many folks. Right. I mean, producer Mark, don't you, I think there are a lot of people who really prefer things this way. I certainly do. Well, at least the working from home part. You know? So, yeah. I think it's important. Um, you got to remember that. I mean, I, I got to tell you, for me, the radio shows that I'm able to do when I'm in my own space that I control, that I'm most comfortable in, I mean, I got used to a studio after many years of it, but nothing, nothing compares to... The, the reason this show, I think, sounds the way it does is because it is... It is like all of you are sitting in my living room all across the country. I know that sounds a little bit a little bit off or a little crazy, but I'm talking to you and I'm at home. And that means that there's a feeling of of comfort here and a feeling of, of connection with what I'm saying and and with with the way that I view all of you listening. It's as though you're sitting on my couch with Tallulah pretty much as I'm talking to you. And that's that's really hard to replicate in even the nicest studio setting. So there, I will say there are some advantages, but yeah, there are a lot of people that have gotten used to like not really having to be on deadline the same way, not having to, I mean, I think, 
commute the same way that we moved out of being an assembly line work and realized over time that now if you're doing skilled machinery for uh, for a, a car company or something, I don't mean that. But, you know, sitting there and and packaging the bonbons by hand. Right. I mean, the same way that people try to get away from that kind of repetitious work like that and get into other you know we get out of the factories more of that's mechanized i I think we want to get away from mandatory commute you know and and think about it this way even if you even if you like being in the office sometimes why not be able to be in the office three days a week or two days a week and then be able to not think about all the hours and time and productivity and more time to sleep or be with your kids so you know that this is this is a, a positive effect, I think, for the very terrible situation of COVID. One of the positive side effects will be people rethinking work and work-life balance. You know, a different thing now. You know, I mean, you know, producer Mark doesn't have to. Producer Mark, at, at your worst commute, when you were coming in from Long Island into, into Manhattan, in, into downtown, into Tribeca, very fancy but very far away from a lot of places in Manhattan you're going to try to get to with mass transit, what would it take you to get to the office? At my worst, if there's delays and stuff, hour and a half, two hours, each way. Every day, each way, folks. Yeah. Every day. Producer Mark, how long is your commute? How long has your commute been for the last, uh, you know, twelve months or so? Since March, uh, about twelve steps. Yeah. 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 Do you like? Do you like having uh, the extra two or three hours of your day to live your life? I love it. I don't read quite yeah. as much because I don't have time to sit on the train, but still love it. Yeah. But see, folks, so for some people, there, there is that really positive. And we should embrace that. We should embrace the, these changes. I mean, for me, I've been able to do people ask, how do I do? I do. I've been doing six hours every day of live performance when all in with radio and podcast and TV and six hours a day. Every day. Wait, am I doing the math right? Yes. No. Six hours a day. I can't even believe I said that out loud. I, that's what I've been doing. And that wouldn't be possible if I had to spend even even 30 or 40 minutes each way. And by the way, that was my commute. And I live in Manhattan. But that's what it takes. By the time you get to the subway, you get on the subway, you get up the building, you get the you know, you get your Starbucks. You, you know, I drink my black rifle, obviously. Part one. Part two. Um, you know, I, I save time and I'm able to spend more energy and effort in this show, in the product. There's efficiency gains here. So. But I know what, what Madeline's talking about is people also just being like, well, I'm just not going to do anything and stay home and, you know, the, the approaching there. There can be too much of this. And uh, it's funny, you know, Mark, I did a uh, I did a Facebook live. I talked a little bit about about my the trials and tribulations of trying to get into I wouldn't even say get back into shape, just sort of get into better shape. Right. I don't even know what shape I'm trying to get back to. I mean, at different times in my life, you know, when I was in the CIA and I was 27. Yeah, I was like probably 12 or 13 percent body fat and could run, you know, six or seven miles without uh, without any any issue, just feeling like going for a stroll. And, you know, but I mean, I'm 39 now, so I'm not trying to I'm not that guy. Um, But, you know, I I, anyway, you you see what I'm saying. Like, I I try to talk to people about how I'm trying to get back into a better version of myself these days. You'd be amazed, producer Mark, how how much uh, fitness advice there is out there for with Team Buck. A lot of it. I can tell you that. I'm sure uh, Team Buck is a very healthy group. Very healthy group. Well, we actually do have a, a fair number of of um, IFBB pros, the International Federation of Bodybuilding, who listen to the show. And we have actual true, uh, like, elite physique competitors, male and female, who listen to this show. So it's great because, like, when I, I, I mean, I, I don't, I, at some point I'll tell you, but one person 
who heard me during one of these shows, Mark, who is one of the, uh, I mean, she's one of the top female bodybuilders, I mean, in, in a, you know, in a lightweight division, whatever, but one of the top female bodybuilders in the country sent me a whole bunch of workout programs just to be nice because I was saying how I was getting fat during COVID. Wow, that's very So it's nice. one of the great advantages of Team Buck, isn't it, you know? Like yeah, I ask and I get, on everything. I get I, they're world class experts in everything. That listen to the show. I mean, I could sit here and say, guys, you know, the thing that goes under the part of the Blackhawk rotor that touches the thing that and I'd have I'd have five special operations aviators writing in within 24 hours like, well, Buck, that's the who's a what's it. And you connect it to the who's a does it. And it makes the thing go fast. You know, I mean, like, that's what we've got here. It's pretty fun, actually. So, producer Mark, always remember, you can crowdsource any problem you have to this audience, and you will get you will get some answers where people make fun of you, as I do all the time. But you will get somebody who's like the world-renowned expert on it who will, be, who will tell you what to do. Well, good thing. I plan on, uh, when we move, we're going to have a second bedroom. I plan on getting this thing called Fight Camp, a boxing, um, whatever they call it, a bag in your house. Oh, yeah. With like, It's kind of like, you know how Peloton has classes on demand? Yep, yep. Same yep. thing with boxing and kickboxing. Maybe somebody it's can like, teach uh, me how to do that. Like Rumble a little bit. Rumble is a similar thing, right? Or isn't Rumble like boxing classes, boxing fitness classes? Yeah, it's a boxing fitness it's... class, but you're doing it at home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So, yeah, producer Mark and I. We, we, producer Mark and I had big plans. We were going to get in shape together. We were going to go go to a hockey game together. And then COVID ruined everything. So we got fat and didn't go to hockey. But we're going to get unfat and go to hockey when they actually have... Do you, when are they? We don't know when that is, right? When the games are going to be back? When well, games are back. Fans are. I'm sorry, fans. I mean, yeah. Actually, uh, New York just started allowing fans, but 10 mm. percent capacity. Ooh. So only season ticket holders are getting it for right now. Uh, okay, I was going to say, how do they? How do they do? How do they do that? But all right, there we go. Learning something new every day. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Join the conversation and message Buck on Facebook, Instagram, or email teambuck at iheartmedia.com. He may read it on the show. More roll call. And remember, go to bucksexton.com for uh, updates on news throughout the day. And also, uh, you can listen to the podcast there. And we, we want to really grow that podcast this year. It's a big imperative for us. So please pass the word. Tell people about the Buck Sexton Show. Caleb. Uh, hey, Buck, I know according to the media, we're not supposed to care about COVID deaths with the new administration being in charge. With that being said, do you think anyone will ask the experts or health officials how many lives could have been saved if we only double masked from the beginning of the pandemic? Also, for those comparing masking and wearing a seatbelt, I guarantee there is more evidence a seatbelt will save your life than a cloth, ma- cloth mask will save you from COVID. Thanks for keeping up the fight. Shields high. Caleb, that's a great point, by the way. Like, does, any, does anyone argue about the lack of effectiveness of, of a seatbelt? Not really. <laughs> I mean, you know, if you've ever been in a crash, you really want to be in a seatbelt. Do people argue about the effectiveness, the level of effectiveness of masks? They cert- I know we're not supposed to or not really allowed, but we certainly do. Hence, double. If, if single masking is so effective, why are we now double masking? I ask you, I pose that question to you because we can all think this through. We all can figure out what the real answers are here. So... Uh, uh, Caleb, very, very well, well played, sir. And as for uh, how many lives would have been saved if we had double masked from the beginning? Yeah, of course. You know, is there any accountability for that? If double masking is such a good idea, why did we wait so long to double mask? What's what's the rationale? What's the explanation for that? So there you have it. Uh, Caleb, excellent stuff, by the way. Excellent stuff from Caleb. 
By the way, you know, producer Mark, I figured out how to play with my two. I miss my I miss my two brothers a lot. I mean, my people always ask my my best friends are my two brothers and my little sister. I mean, those are my best friends, and uh, like actually my best friends, not just my family members. And my two brothers are, are in Miami right now. But we figured out how to do how to play Call of Duty together, you know, online in separate places. It is so fun. Wait, I mean, there's nothing. Figured that out. Just figured this out. Wow. There's nothing quite like talking trash to your brother in Call of Duty when he gets wasted and you're running up the scoreboard and he's, you know, 1,500 miles away or whatever. It's great. You should make it so, Team Buck uh, Call of Duty group. I was going to say, Producer Mark, you got to text me. You got to give me your name. We'll get you in on this Call of Duty action. You know, we got we to gotta test your skills here. I, I also my, probably my, have my to man buy Jesse, the game, to be fair. My man Jesse Kelly, he plays. I'm gonna get. I'm gonna get him in on this action. See how he does. Um, but uh, yeah, man, we gotta get producer Mark to join our Call of Duty band of brothers. Well, speaking you know? of experts, if there's an expert on how to make a group, a public group on how to play a Call of Duty game, email us or, or message us, and we'll we'll make a Team Buck Call of Duty game. We we do have a professional level Call of Duty player who listens to this show. Well, yep, perhaps he or she story. can help. Yeah, yeah. So we we've got people. So I was thinking it'd be fun to do some team buck Call of Duty at some point. I mean, I don't know how many of us, if, even if like eight or ten of us got into one into one game and played, and then you guys could all write into roll call, talk smack about how I just camp out with a sniper rifle all day and I keep getting wasted, and then producer Mark will make fun of me. Everybody wins. I'm not gonna lie, that probably would be my strategy too. Probably would happen. Uh, Brian Buck, to my shame. I haven't read 1984 until recently in spite of hearing many references to it both in the show and my life. I've come to realize that while most people would see Oceania as a dystopian nightmare, it only makes sense that some people would see it as a roadmap to success. The idea of speech being violence but silence also being violence is an example of doublethink. The idea of men being women sounds a lot like 2 plus 2 equals 5. The two minutes of hate lasted 24 hours daily on MSNBC they're constantly changing history with nonsense like the 1619 Project, and they regularly change definitions. Cancel culture is a form of vaporization. Big Brother is now screening to ensure the military is loyal to party over country and wants to conduct surveillance for wrong think. And now there's talk of creating a truth commission, which is a direct synonym for Ministry of Truth. All this to end the evil capitalists. These are dark times, my friend. We are the proles. If there is hope, it lies with us. Shields high. Brian, excellent, excellent uh, roll call message. Thank you. And I'm so glad that you took the time to read 1984. And for everybody listening, if you have not read, okay, book number one is the Bible. We all get that. Okay, fine. If you have, so take that as a given. If you have not read 1984, or you have not read George Orwell's Animal Farm, comma, or if you have not read either of those in the last 10 years, Go back and read them again. It's worth it. It's not a lot of time. You'll get a lot out of it. Those are two books that are worth going back to, going back to, remembering. It, it's training your mind to understand. Orwell knew the other side. Orwell was a socialist. He was a socialist who figured out over time the, the links and the tendency of socialism toward authoritarianism and totalitarianism. He knew the enemy up close and personal. So please go back, Orwell's 1984 and uh, Animal Farm. Read them both. Um, and if you have time, read Homage to Catalonia as well, another great work by George Orwell uh, that is often overlooked. That's going to be our show for today, everybody. Really looking forward to being with you tomorrow. Thanks so much for your time. 
pass the buck. Tell one person in your life about the Buck Sexton Show. Until then, Shields High.